Today's reading is uh, from the book of Daniel, and it is chapter 2. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I'll have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you'll receive from me gifts and rewards and great honour. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you're trying to gain time because you realise that this is what I firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You've conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, Why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time, so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and disposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret the dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found among a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, 
Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. As you are lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation that you may understand what went through your mind. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue is made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were broken into pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw the iron mixed with clay, as the toes were partly iron and partly clay. So this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honour and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. 
Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. This is the word of the Lord. And a very good morning to you. It's great to see you this morning. My name is James Ballinger, if we haven't met, and I'm the assistant minister here, and it's lovely to see you, especially if you're visiting. Well, as we begin to look at this chapter, let's uh, pray and ask the revealer of mysteries to reveal his mysteries to us. Let's pray together. Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. Dear Heavenly Father, we long that you would reveal your mysteries to us now, that we would grow in love for you and we'd know how to walk wisely in this world. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we're picking up our series again in Daniel this morning. If you were here last week, you'll remember that Daniel and his friends and many other young uh, Israelite men were taken into Babylon. They've been brainwashed for three years, indoctrinated in the ways of the Babylonians. And now they stand ready in the service of the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on the planet. And yet chapter two begins not with Nebuchadnezzar in all his finery. Rather, we see him in his bedroom, and he's a twitching, quivering wreck. Look at verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. And there are two themes running through this chapter. There's the issue of wisdom. Nebuchadnezzar is terrified in part because he has no idea what his dream means or what its implications are. But then there's the issue of power. Even if he could understand the dream, can he do anything about it? He knows it's to do with the future. Has he any control over it? And these themes of wisdom on the one hand and power on the other run right through this chapter. And we'll see how our God speaks into it. But first, Nebuchadnezzar summons the wise men of Babylon. We see verse 2, they're enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers. Now it's easy for us to think these guys are cranks. Enchanters, astrologers, that's probably tarot card readers and horoscope writers, nutcases, fruit, fruitcakes. But no, these are, just in case you haven't guessed, I don't think Christians should really be reading horoscopes, just in case that wasn't clear. Um, but these guys aren't cranks. These are the genuine wise men of the day. If this was Winston Peters as he deputises, it would be the special advisers, the university professors, the chief medical officer. Anyone whose society thinks is wise and knows something about the universe is in Nebuchadnezzar's bedroom. He says to his team, I want to know what my dream means. You can hear the sycophancy in verse 4. O king, live forever. Tell your servant the dream and we will interpret it. No, we don't know why the king won't reveal the dream. Maybe he can't remember. Probably more likely, he thinks that whatever he says, they'll spin, give a flattering interpretation of himself. He wants to know the truth. But either way, we can sense his fear, his paranoia, can't we, in the excessiveness of the reward and the punishment. If they fail, then they'll be cut into pieces. Their houses will be turned to rubble. And if they can do it, 
Then they'll be rewarded richly. Honor and gifts await them. Well, the wise men begin to sweat. O king, tell us the dream and we'll answer it. The king is adamant. You're playing for time. You're trying to deceive me. The end of verse 9. Tell me the dream and then I will know that you can interpret it for me. But of course, they can't. They're forced into this humiliating confession, verse 10. There is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. Then verse 11. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. Well, we need to come back. That's a wonderfully theological statement, isn't it? But first, the king is apoplectic. He's so furious, he orders all the wise men to be killed. That's half the civil service wiped out in an instant. There's a kind of pantomime quality to this, isn't there? But there's a very serious point. This is our first point this morning. All human wisdom has its limits. All human wisdom has its limits. Now, I don't want to do down the wisdom of these Babylonians. It is very, very impressive. As I said, the advisors are not cranks. And the Babylonian society is highly sophisticated. This is a society that conquered a vast swathe of the Middle East. They built beautiful cities, wonderful architecture. And then they created one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens, an oasis irrigated in the middle of the desert. And like modern scientists, they are very, very good at analysing the world. They can uh, figure things out, make things happen. But like all human wisdom, modern or old, there are limits to what they can do. As the wise men put it, there are things that belong to the gods that are outside of human domain, the, the human domain. Or to put it in biblical terms, there are things that need to be revealed to us if we're to understand them. Science or the, the wisdom of the Babylonians cannot reach into certain areas. There are things outside of this world that need to be revealed by our maker. To us, Nebuchadnezzar's demand is utterly ridiculous. How can somebody possibly tell another person's dream? It's impossible, ludicrous. But I wonder, do we see that sometimes we, certainly often our society, expects equally ludicrous things from the wise men of today? People hope, don't they, that science will tell us why does the world exist? Sure, we've seen TV programs like that. Or pseudoscientists who will tell us what happens when I die. But of course, those questions can't be answered by the tools of science. And an honest scientist will, will admit that. Our society longs for the psychologist who will tell us, how can I be happy? Or the expert who will tell us authoritatively what it means to be a human. Now, they're all excellent questions, aren't they? But they cannot be answered, at least not fully, without some kind of external revelation. We need a word from our maker. Human wisdom is limited. Now, I'm guessing those kind of questions sound a little bit philosophical, esoteric almost. Just let me ground that with two, two uh, 
concrete things. And I'm aware I'm scratching on the surface of this, so do come and talk to me afterwards. But imagine you're invited to a seminar on happiness. It's entitled Seven Tips to a Happy Life. And they might give you some good tips. You might actually come out feeling better. But unless that person speaks of God and his revelation of what it is to be a human, then we'll miss the fact that we're made by God for a relationship with him, that our hearts are restless until they find rest in him, that there can be no true happiness without a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That seminar will be incomplete. Or similarly, accompany a friend to the doctor or psychologist to talk about their anxiety or their low self-esteem. And the doctor may be able to do a lot to help. They may be able to talk about the biological things going on in the brain. And the psychologist may talk about bad thought patterns. But unless they acknowledge that the person before them is a person with a body and a soul, and they, they live before a holy God who loves them deeply, who controls the world in a way that is good and wonderful for the Christian, then those deep issues of anxiety, low self-esteem, will never be able to be dealt with deeply. The insights of human knowledge are always limited. As I said, it's a huge topic. I've skimmed over it. But almost any topic you can think of, parenting, money management, uh, politics, without some kind of external revelation, human wisdom always hits its limits. And the terrible thing is the world rarely admits that. Think of Richard Dawkins or the TV pundit who claims to have the answer. No, there is a limit. And do we see what it leads to? Everyone in this story, from the most powerful man on the planet down, is petrified. They're running around in fear. Andrew picked it up when he read so well, didn't he? There's a sense of haste, of, of hurrying, of flapping. Except for Daniel. Look at verse 14. Daniel goes to the commander of the king's guard, probably the king's chief executioner. And whereas everyone else is, is flapping, he speaks with wisdom and tact. He asks, why is the king's decree so harsh? Or, or probably, why is it so hasty? And then Daniel, in a relaxed way, asks for time. He goes home, speaks to his friends. Flee! Leave the country! No, Let's pray. He gathers them into a prayer meeting. He urges them to intercede to God. Because unlike the Babylonians, Daniel knows there is a God who actively reveals wisdom. That's the second point. Daniel knows the God who actively reveals his wisdom. The Babylonian wise men are absolutely right. There are some things outside the grasp of humans. They're the purview of the gods. But unlike the Babylonian view of God, these gods are not far off. No, God is intimately involved in his creation. He's the God who reveals mysteries. And so in verse 19, we see it. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Do you see all the things that Nebuchadnezzar wanted, all the things he'd threatened life and death for, promised great rewards for, are found by a few young men on their knees, praying to the God who actively reveals wisdom. Well, we're desperate, aren't we, to know what the dream is? And certainly in the story, the executioner could knock on the door any moment, drag them out. And yet, strikingly, Daniel isn't in a hurry. He's still not in a hurry. He stops to praise the God of heaven. 
think that's a challenge to us, isn't it? When we've been blessed, when we've heard an answer to prayer, do we stop and praise him? We don't have time to consider it in any detail, but look at verse 20. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. Wisdom and power, the things that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to avoid his insomnia, they're God's. They're not Nebuchadnezzar's. They're not the great generals or the professor or the guru, the TV pundit. No, they belong to God. And you see how he uses his power, verse 21, to change times and seasons. He sets up and deposes kings and rulers. He gives wisdom to the wise, knowledge to the discerning. Friends, if you're wise, if you've got knowledge, if you know how to live rightly in this world, you should praise God. He's, he has given it to you. Well, then we see Daniel going out, don't we? Verse 25, he finds the chief executioner. He asks to be taken to the king, and Nebuchadnezzar is incredulous. Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? But Daniel actually says no, doesn't he? Daniel replied, no wise man enchanter, magician, or diviner, can explain to the king the mysteries he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Well, before we see the dream, let's just consider some implications that flow from this fact that God is a God who actively reveals wisdom to his people One of the things I've loved about being in New Zealand Zealand, that I admire about New Zealand culture is the can-do mentality. I love that you phone up a a government organisation and they're so can-do compared to England. And that seems to be throughout society. Everyone thinks if there's a problem, we'll solve it. Someone told me it's called the eight-wire mentality. Absolutely brilliant. Something goes wrong, we'll sort it out. But I say this to myself as well. I guess the danger of a can-do mentality is, if we're not careful, it can breed self-reliance, can't it? A problem comes, and we think we can solve it. And if that's our kind of instinct, then we won't instinctively pray. I wonder when things go wrong in life, when we're struggling to know how to live wisely in God's world, do we pray? You see, Daniel, the most wise man in Babylon, ten times wiser than anyone else, and when this problem comes gets his friends to pray. Is that our instinct? Take it when we go into a tricky situation, you know, the kind of personal conflict, that meeting that you're dreading. Do we pray? Do we have a little group of friends? We say, will you just pray for me? Because we know that when they pray, it helps. If somebody flicks us a text and says, I'm I'm in trouble, please pray for me for have wisdom. Do we take that seriously? Do we pray expecting God to give that wisdom to his people. In the New Testament, there's a wonderful promise in the letter of James. It says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. It will be given to you. Now, this is not a promise that you'll get a PhD. Biblical wisdom is much more like a skill, isn't it? It's not knowing that something. It's knowing how to do something. It's based on our relationship with the Lord Jesus. But as one author says, wisdom is a divinely given ability to have insight as to the best way to live. 
And friends, don't we need that? In a range of situations, we desperately need to know how to live for him. And the promise is, if we ask him, he'll give it to us. But I wonder, do many of us, do we actually live like the Babylonians? We know there's a God in heaven. We know that deep, mysterious things are his, but he's far off. He's not concerned with my problems. But no, this says he is. He gives wisdom to those who ask. I guess in part that's from the Bible, isn't it? The Bible is God's wisdom written down. And as we read it, we do see that revelation that qualifies all other human wisdom. We see of a a God who will judge the world, gives a great meaning to every act now, that how we live now is important. Everything will be sifted and weighed. It It talks about what it is to be a human, that we're people made in the image of God, that it isn't society who determines what a human is. It's not even our own feelings that determine it, but the one who made us speaks of forgiveness. That no Christian need lie on their bed in terror, as Nebuchadnezzar does, because we know that even if the worst thing were to happen to a Christian, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. No power in all of creation can do that. We're secure. But all of that is revealed. It's not something we know from the world. It comes from a word of God. And it's not just that we read the book as we read other books. As we read it, we need him to reveal it to us by his spirit. That's why before we begin a talk, I hope before we begin our Bible reading in the morning, we pray, don't we? We say, revealer of mysteries, help us to understand how this word applies in our lives today. It's not just a habit. It's a we desperately, desperately need his help, don't we? I was taught by a professor in Oxford who was incredibly knowledgeable, written many books on the Bible. He was full of wisdom. He could beat any of us on a Bible quiz, full of knowledge, but not full of wisdom. He didn't know this God. He'd never bowed the knee before the Lord Jesus. And so I take it that the, the youngest, the babiest Christian in this room is wiser than him because he's been taught by God. He or or she has been taught by God. Of course, it doesn't mean we know everything. We see in verse 22, there are deep and hidden things. God doesn't choose to reveal everything, but he has promised to give us everything we need for a godly life. 2 Peter 1 says this, God has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And the challenge of this, friends, is do we ask for it? Do we ask God to reveal this wisdom to us and expect him to do that? Well, finally, we come to the dream. We've waited so long, haven't we? The narrative stretches it out. And as we see it, we think there's no wonder Nebuchadnezzar was scared. Verse 31, you looked, O king, And there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. And the head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And while you're watching a rock cut out, but not by human hands, it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. And the statue 
becomes, the middle of verse 35, like chaff on a threshing floor in the, in the summer. The wind swept them all away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. And then Daniel gives the interpretation. And we'll come back to these themes later in Daniel. We can't do them justice here. But we see this statue represents the empires, the kingdoms of the earth. And the gold head is Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Verse 37, you, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. What do we see? God has done that. God has given it by his power. And the third thing briefly we need to see from this chapter is God. there is a God who actively rules the world. He's not far off. He's not disinterested. But just as he gives wisdom, so he gives power. He's the one who sets up kings and deposes them. And what awesome power it is, verse 38, in your hands he's placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. He's almost like a god. And yet this awesome, mighty king will fall. Verse 39, after you another king will arise. The Medo-Persian Empire represented by the, the silver. And then the Greeks come, the bronze. And then finally the Romans. One empire falling, another rising in its place. But the focus here isn't so much on the empires, but on the rock cut out, by but not by human hands. Verse 44, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. I wonder what it makes you think of. In the time of the clay and iron kingdom, the fourth kingdom, the Roman Empire, a rock strikes a statue as God sets up his own kingdom. Surely it points to the Lord Jesus. Jesus speaks of himself as a rock or a stone, over the cornerstone over which the whole uh, kingdom is built, the whole house is built. And this rock, not a humanly cut out rock, so presumably a divinely cut out rock, strikes that statue. It collapses all the other kingdoms of the world and then it grows slowly, ever so slowly until it fills the world. We see here wonderfully God's kingdom, that Jesus comes ever so silently into that manger in Bethlehem and begins to teach, call people to himself. He dies and rises again. And wherever people call him king, God's kingdom grows until it fills the whole earth, until it comes here to the ends of the earth. And you see it outlasts every kingdom outlast the Babylonians, the Romans, outlast Napoleon, the British Empire, the Nazis. It will outlast Donald Trump and the American dream. They say the Chinese Empire's next. It will outlast them too. Friends, you see what it says to the Christian? Though it doesn't seem it now, though things seem very small, Jesus Christ and his kingdom, that rock, will grow and grow and grow until it fills the whole earth. Brothers and sisters, we're on the winning side. It's worth investing our time and energy because the kingdom will grow. It's worth being associated with this kingdom because it's the one that will last. But this message isn't just for Christians. 
I wonder if you noticed it right back at the beginning. We're told that this is in Aramaic, the language of diplomacy. And actually, chapters 2 through to 7 of Daniel are written in Aramaic. It's the language of the court, the language of diplomacy, like French in the olden days. And I think the point is the message is not just for the believer, but for the whole world. That's for those outside. And those who wouldn't call themselves Christians here. It's wonderful you're here. But do you see the challenge? Every other kingdom, every great power will be blown away like chaff, the waste of the harvest. It's a terrible warning that you too will be swept away in God's judgment. But it's also an invitation because God is not far off. He's a God actively involved in his creation and he longs to reveal the mystery of salvation to you. Will you call out to him? In a moment, we'll take bread and wine. If you're not a believer, please don't take that. That's not really for you. But in that time, take, take the time to call out to him, to ask him, if you're there, if you really are a God in heaven, reveal yourself to me, the wonderful prayer. And if you are a believer, then rejoice. Praise him that he's revealed the mystery of salvation to you, to me. Praise him that his kingdom is unstoppable, that we're on the winning side, and one day we'll eat again in the kingdom with Jesus when we see him come again in glory with every power below him, his kingdom filling the world. Let's take a moment and we'll pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are a revealer of mysteries and we pray that you'd reveal that mystery into the hearts of each of us. We long that wherever we are, whether we're in your kingdom, whether we're not in your kingdom, whether we're in your kingdom but ashamed of being in your kingdom, we pray, give us the courage to know we're on the winning side, that you, our God, are actively involved in this world and we pray that this week we live relying on you, calling upon you, longing for your wisdom to live rightly in this world. And we praise you that for those who ask it, you will give. In Jesus' name, amen.